Thanks for listening to the Women Emerging podcast. Every week we put up a new episode with insights into leadership, practical leadership, seen through the eyes of women leaders of all ages and all sectors from right across the world. Our aim is for women to be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join Women Emerging on our website, womenemerging.org. That's womenemerging.org for more fabulous free leadership content. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Julia Middleton here, Women Emerging Director and your podcast host. Forgive me, my voice hasn't improved much on last week. Uh, I'm getting increasingly nervous because next week I have to go into the recording studio and um, record the audio of the book I've just finished on the subject of the Women Emerging Expedition. And um, I'm really worried whether my voice is going to be up to it. You know, at first they said they would use an actor to record the book. And and I, and I begged, so they said they would give me an audition. So I did a bit of an audition to read my own book, and there and I passed it. So it's me reading it, but I'm slightly worried that we're going to have to resort to a, an actor after all. But I'm working hard on my voice now. This week we have Armin talking, and she's talking as part of this whole series about five things that she's learned about leading in the first, I think, about 10 years of her career. She's chosen five objects to illustrate each of the insights. And I loved talking to Armin. During the interview, she refers to Aurora. uh, And I should really have stopped her and got her to describe Aurora and what it means. But Because I forgot to, let me tell you, Aurora is where she works. And the Aurora Prize is something that I love dearly. It is a prize handed out every year to somebody who's done something extraordinary through their humanitarian work. Over the years, I've been to many celebrations of the Aurora Prize in Armenia, where it began. Because it began there because it, it's, it's inspired by the extraordinary humanitarians in Armenia who appeared, revealed themselves, did extraordinary things during the Armenian genocide. So over to Armin with her objects. Her first one, you'll see in the picture, uh, is a pretty manky little bicycling glove. It's not one that I think I'd ever volunteer to put on. It's more like one that, you know, that you see them on the side of the road that some poor bicyclist has dropped. And since then, they've been heavily rained on and um, probably driven over by a series of cars. It's a rather manky bicycling glove. But Armin... Armin will explain to you why she chose it. Armin, you're going to start with a bike glove. It's a bike glove that you took with you on that extraordinary bicycle ride, is it? 
Yes, it is a bike glove that I actually debated whether or not I needed for a month-long bike ride across Europe that I did with a friend and very little other concept of what we would do out there other than get from point A to point B. So the bike glove was maybe one of the few things that we decided to bring <laughs> on, a, went, on a bit of a journey. Am I right you went from Czechoslovakia to Amsterdam? Yes. Yep. And and you, you did a pretty weird route, didn't you? A sort of twisty, twirly route. We did. We optimized for bike paths in the end through Germany. And in the beginning, I think the conversation was something like, we want to go to Prague. We think that we could find bikes in Prague, which think about where we ended in Amsterdam. It's an interesting choice on our part to not start there. <laughs> and and we found a, a city called Chesky Krumlov that we thought was quite interesting. There was a beautiful castle. And we figured we'll start there. So... I mean, I know you a bit, I mean, if I imagined you going on a bicycle ride, I'd imagine you having it all plotted out completely. So when you told me about this, I was a bit surprised. So tell me what it taught you about leadership, this, this bicycle ride. So the bicycle ride and, and the glove that saw me through it were kind of a manifestation of keeping myself on my toes. So testing myself, a little bit of a what have you done for me lately mentality, which ultimately, obviously, this was fully self-inflicted. We did 10-hour days, you know, many unreasonable courses, this and that, and we really did not know what we were doing at the time, other than that we would be physically able to do it, for which we were lucky. Really, what it did was put me out of my comfort zone and remind me that that's where learning happens and that there's importance in finding comfort and discomfort, but that there was even more importance in really reconnecting with and then discovering, being able to define my values when I was in that moment of discomfort and kind of in more of a survival mode than in a comfort zone. That sounds quite grand. I remember doing something like this. It wasn't as long. I remember sitting, you know, there's that long bridge at the, um, at the top of Holland. Mm. Um, I remember someone had persuaded me to go on a bicycle ride in Holland because it was flat. And then I discovered that it may be flat, but it had winds. And I remember mm -hmm. sitting in the middle of that bridge thinking, what am I doing here? But the truth is, I mean, unlike you, I was not thinking about my values. I was just thinking about how hopeless I was. So those terrible moments for you, they were really important. Yes. I mean, I think for one thing, and I mentioned this with this being self-inflicted, but I reminded myself constantly that it, this is a, it's a privilege to be able to do this and to take time and just, just have my only job be from getting to point A to point B. But I think also in moments of difficulty, in moments when it's not exactly obvious what to do, those are the times when I try to remind myself to act in a way that I'll be proud of when the moment passes. And that has shown up in a number of places. I think athletics is the is the big one when you're in a lot of pain, reminding yourself to persevere so that you'll be proud after. And that's when you find out what your values are, because that's what you'll be proud of. Yes. And then vice versa, right? When you're in your you know office chair or wherever you find yourself on a normal day, thinking about those moments and reminding yourself of when you felt 
raw and very connected to what it is that you value and trying to live by those values, even in steady state. And why is this important for leaders to, to understand? You know what, actually, it might not be important for every leader to understand. It's important for me because I found myself in leadership positions at quite a young age. And it was partially because I had a natural interest in it, partially because I found people kind of started to follow in a weird way. Maybe it's that I'm an oldest sibling, and so I see the world that way. But I think when you find yourself in that position at a young age, in order to become an authentic leader or in order to feel like you belong in that position, understanding the way that you do things and what matters to you is really important. You, you can't express that to others. You can't really lead others without understanding that yourself. And so I'm not sure that it's important to everyone, but it was, it was really important to me. Give me an example. An example of a value or an example of a moment when I needed them? A moment where, because you understood your own values, people around you accepted your leadership, even though you were far too young for them to naturally accept your leadership, perhaps. I can point back to, so when I first lived in Armenia, I'll point back to that. I had left a corporate job. This was actually not long after this bike trip that we were talking about. And I found myself in a position where uh, we were helping getting the Aurora Prize off the ground. My current job is I'm back with the Aurora Prize, so it's fitting. And you kind of, in a startup, everyone does everything. But eventually, as we got closer to the event, I started leading a team. And it was a loosely formed team, but I was in an official managerial position. I had some experience, but not very much. And I was 10 to 20 years to the junior of almost everyone that I was working with. And it is tr traditionally considered a hierarchical culture. And so the age piece did matter. I think by being able to communicate that I was aware of this, so being able to be honest about the fact that I knew that there was this difference, this gap, and being able to bring to bear what it was that I had learned so far in my life and in my career, namely, I'd been an athlete all through college, so the work ethic was there. I had grown up multicultural, and so I truly and deeply understood what it was to live in this other culture from the one that I had grown up in, in the U.S. By being able to express both of those things, I was actually able to help get people on side personally, which then fled in or bled into the professional side of things. We didn't have time to have kind of a crisis moment where we needed to forge as a team, which, you know, subsequently with longer term teams that I led, we did have. But in this moment, it was almost it was a feeling of, well, what, what else am I going to do? And luckily I had these things in my back pocket. I knew I was able to communicate them to the group and, and it worked. And interestingly, that sort of leads on to your next object, which is a medal, isn't it? It's actually, so I thought about maybe using the medal, but then I decided to use something a little bit different. This is the cancer research. I think it was kind of a piece of cloth is what it looks like. It's pretty ragged. It says Cancer Research UK on it. And it's actually a piece of cloth that I cut out from a training shirt that they sent me when I had signed on for their marathon team that I hadn't trained in and I hadn't checked properly fit. And then the night before the marathon, I realized, well, I'm running for Cancer Research UK. Surely I have to wear something that represents them. So I cut it out and put it onto another shirt that I had trained in. 
And that's the object. And it taught you what about leading? When I was living in the UK, there's this great phrase that I became acquainted with, which is all the gear and no idea. Say that again. All the gear gear and no idea, but idea, because I guess accent, (laughs) you would say it so it rhymed. I don't. I think for me, that was a, a moment the night before the race when I was just thinking to myself, good Lord, I am, I am probably the opposite of this where I have none of the gear <laughs> to a concerning degree. You might see this as a bit of a through line to the Viking story, but I do promise on occasion I'm organized and on an occasion I have, I have the gear, but I knew I had some of the idea because I had an athletic background. I had trained. I knew what I was getting myself into. I just hadn't necessarily thought about the shirt. I thought about the shoes, but not the shirt. And the result of this is that when you form a team, Armin, you don't worry about the t-shirt. You look at the idea. I try to look at the aptitude or like the ability to learn rather than the proven track record of having done exactly what it is that I'm hiring the person to do. That feels more, that feels more relevant to me. And that also feels like. It's promising. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. promising, but it also lets you look at a, a more interesting, a more diverse pool of people. It's a risk. And it's something that you need to justify to higher ups and explain. And there are certain types of things you can do in a conversation and in an interview to try to prove out that the person could theoretically do the job. But I found it to be really rewarding. It has to be said, I mean, I think I've always... I've always recruited for potential and made some terrible mistakes as a result, but mostly they've been triumphs. So all the gear and none of the ideas, you've got to be the opposite. You've got to look for people who have ideas and it really doesn't matter whether they've got the gear or not. Yeah. But that, because there's a real theme to all your objects, that leads you on to your dear husband's journal. Now, explain that one. What kind of notebooks does he like buying? He's a journalist, isn't he? He is a journalist and he is, uh, he's also, actually he of all things is, can be a gear or technology aficionado. Um, he is well-researched. He has specific interests and proclivities. Um, but this this notebook, and I'm looking at it, it says, it's four by eight, Greg ruled, and it's just called Reporter's Notebook. So it's it's a specific type. He's, he had to go out and, and source them. It's a top flip, one of those kind of traditional journalist yeah. notebooks. And we have had them flung around the house for many years now because he, he works through them very quickly, uh, kind of fills them or moves on to the next one. Okay, this way, how much of a stretch is this going to be? So what does that teach you about leadership? Sure. For me, living with and learning through John, um, and the notebook really represents this because when he's working on a notebook or when he's kind of writing is when I see this the most clearly or I'm reminded of the most clearly, his mind works in a very different way to mine. He is, as you'd imagine, a journalist, very curious hyper-driven to find the answer and to, to keep going until he does. And his mind jumps from thing to thing. 
uh, maybe self-aggrandizing here, but I always thought I've had a relatively quick mind and I, and I get bored easily and maybe impatient. He's that like 10 X. And so when I see him scribbling down, writing all range of topics, thinking about stories could be completely unrelated. I'm reminded always that there are many different ways to be successful, to be a successful part of a team, to be a successful individual, and not everyone's mind is going to work the same way. And that's actually, that's a really good thing. It's a great thing to recruit for. I think it often gets talked about in leadership, recruit for complementary skills. But I also think, you know, maybe some of the skill sets similar, but recruit for different thinking. The types of ideas you get to the table are much, much better on the whole. It can be more challenging to manage that sort of person or to work with that sort of person. But ultimately, if it's about going far, not just fast, that's better for everyone. They can be very, very irritating, though, people like that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. So you also, as a leader, and I'm not sure I'm very good at this, have to find ways of managing your own irritation. Because it's probably only fleeting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What... What I found in a professional context, and I, I don't know that I'm very good at this personally, you can, you can talk to John about that, but is the reminder of far, not fast. And coming up through technology companies, that again is, is a challenging proposition because of the emphasis on speed. It can be advantageous in the short run to have homogeneous teams or teams that structure and analyze in a certain way. Um, but to the point we were talking about before, gear, idea, that balance, um, I think long-term it can be much more rewarding to have different types of minds represented. And so you know, that notebook to me kind of reminds me of that. I'm reminded of every day, every day at home. And then the next object, because I, I can't resist these objects, the next object takes you further back though, doesn't it? It takes you back to school. What did you learn at school? From a ring, don't you? It's yeah. a ring. What I chose to, to represent this period or this lesson is um, a ring. It's a high school ring, which is quite a common thing in, in the U.S. For me, I actually still wear mine. And actually, a lot of folks who graduated from this school do. It's a, it's a simple gold ring. It has a lamp on it. It's called the Lamp of Learning. And there's a bit of a ceremonial tradition of, of the senior class passing it on to the, to the rising senior class as they're leaving. For me, what the ring reminds me of, obviously of school, but what the school piece taught me is that great things can come after a very long ramp. A ladder, instead of a ladder, ladder yeah. steps, it's a gentle ramp. A gentle ramp, and the ramp might go up and down and backwards. <laughs> but no, I think, I think it's, ultimately, I felt very grounded in that school. It was, it's an all-girls school. It's very small. Um, you know, very academically oriented, that place became mine, my home. My two sisters came behind me by the time I graduated. You know, I had all of my friends, all of my memories grounded in the school. I absolutely loved it. But when I go back seven years before that, when I first entered that school, it took me probably two years to feel any semblance of having landed or any ownership of that space. And that's something that's traced throughout my life. 
I love to land. I love to feel ownership. I love to feel a part of, I think a lot of people do. For me personally, it takes a long time to get there in many instances. And in a professional environment, depending on your school of thought, you have this 30, 60, 90 ramp. And then the expectation in a lot of cases is that you're there and you're ready. And I'm someone that I know (laughs) it takes me a bit longer to fully land. And especially when you're in a leadership position, it's important to know that about yourself to manage up and manage expectations and also, you know, show enough early on that you will land. But it's also really important for when you're managing folks and you're onboarding them because not everyone is going to have the same speed or even the same level, the need to feel as landed or as grounded in order to say they've really arrived. And you've got to allow people to do it in different ways. Exactly. And again, not always popular. From a management education standpoint, you want to figure it out and decide fast. At the same time, you know, obviously there's, there's cost to keeping someone on too long, but there's huge cost to missing the fact that it's the right person in the wrong seat or the right person in the right seat. They're just taking a while to sit in it. (laughs) Nicely put. And when they sit in this seat, they'll look over your shoulder and on your computer, there will be three quotes, won't there? Because that's your fifth object. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think of this as the kind of culmination of the different leadership lessons we've been talking about, although that feels like too grand a term. This feels like anecdotes that then I've carried with me. (laughs) Maybe it's a better way of phrasing it for me personally, but these these three quotes, you know, they're, they're meaningful to me. I've acquired them and they've guided me in, in you know, big decision-making moments and small. But the thing that they represent for me is that it's important for a leader not only to know what their values are and kind of what drives them, but also to express that, to be open with that. And the day I came into work with those, it was I remember well, it was my first job after my MBA. I'd been put in a senior management role. It was taking a while to ramp. And I I just, I don't know, something clicked. And I said, these guys need to know what I'm about in order to, to kind of come on board and, and for the, the team to find its footing and for us to be really effective. And so it's the quotes themselves for me personally, but what I think they represent is taking on the vulnerability of putting that out there. And then also using that to have conversations with your team that you might not otherwise be able to have. And was this counterintuitive for you? You'd rather be private. You know, it's interesting. At different stages, I can't paint it all with one brush. At different stages of my life and in different situations, it's been more or less natural to be open. We were talking about in Armenia you know, in a leadership position, I realized this is the only, the only way is through. I just need to open up and hope that the authenticity gets folks on board. I think in this position that I was in right at that moment, I felt myself again, rightfully or, or not a bit young in the position. I definitely felt imposter syndrome. And I think, you know, a lot of folks post MBA, but also just generally when they change roles, sometimes you feel like it's the big role and you need to really step up and fill the big shoes. And for some reason in that moment, the big shoes, I thought the right thing to do was be more closed off, try to be more, I don't know, professional. I, 
I'm not sure what my interpretation of that was at the time, because now it's very much not that. So I think it's depended, but at that moment, it was not natural for me to be open. No. It's very difficult being in a job where you're perceived to be too young to do it. And it's a brave act to be open about that. So you recommend it. I think it depends on the field and it depends on the people. Because there's, there's always going to be one or two people who are going to take advantage of your openness and vulnerability. But you just take the risk on them. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I think also, by the way, you could substitute any number of attributes for young. I think there's a, there's a specific in the culture as it is. There's some specificity around young, but you could take that as any sort of minority or less likely or anything like that. And the person will feel more likely to feel imposter syndrome generally. They might not have the personality to, but generally they are. I, I think for me, there was no other way than to take the risk. I couldn't really continue in the limbo and just trying to power through with the approach that I thought was best it wasn't working. And so I pivoted. So yeah, I think if someone finds themselves in that position, I would advise it. Otherwise, of course, there are there are going to be um, exceptions to that, depending on industry. What's the common theme of all your of all your objects? You must have thought about that last night. What's your common theme? I think the common theme with all of them is being open to change. And I, I that sounds a little bit trite, so let me explain. It's being open with either making a mistake or recognizing that the initial approach wasn't the right one or kind of being rough around the edges generally and just working on it. Maybe it better said it's it's the process rather than necessarily the outcome. They're all quite process oriented. But deep down, you drew on quite a lot of learning from sports. That's true, which is also actually an area where at least what I was always taught in endurance sports is process over outcome. Because if you have the right number of training days strung together, you're much more likely to get a winning outcome. And winning and losing are the greatest imposters, as an old coach of mine used to say. What does that mean? It means at the end of the day, you're less likely to remember whether you won a given race on a given day. You're more likely to remember the hours and hours of training that went into it because those are, you know, those are the days that make up your life. And that at the end of a race that's decided by 0.02 seconds of which I've, I've been a part of at least one, the fact that you come out on top or not, it's just luck of the draw. For rowers, it's when your oar went into the water versus when it came out, how much momentum a given boat had at a given moment. It doesn't make any of the eight athletes in one boat or the other significantly better. It's the the process put them in a position to compete for that opportunity. And so you emphasize the process. And sometimes there's far too much sort of highfalutin talk about leadership, about the values. And actually the processes are so very, very, very important, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think for that matter, actually, there's, a lot of emphasis put on outcomes and rightfully so, by the way, this is not to say that outcomes are winning or anything like that doesn't matter, 
but it's to say that focusing on getting the days right, the hours right, the conversations with your team right, add up to something much greater than a perfect work back plan from a given goal. And I think that's what I've learned so far. And if I project out years, decades, however much time I'm, I'm lucky enough to have, I would hope that's something that holds true throughout. Thank you, Armin. Uh, thank you for those five objects. But actually, yes, for the objects, but mostly from the insight. Uh, do you know when I set off doing these, this series on objects and lessons, I thought that they might ran the danger of being quite repetitive, but they absolutely are not. People say such extraordinarily different things and yours are no different. Yes, the point about knowing your own values, a lot of people have talked about, but that point about you really understand your own values only when you're really stretched to the limit. I think that's, um, of course, that comes from somebody who's a sports person, but it. I think that's really interesting. Her second one, I think, is really interesting. You know, recruit your team based on the ideas, not their ability to just turn up in the right gear and look the part, but they need to actually think and do the part. Lovely. Really get your head around the fact that your way is not the only way, that far is not to be lost because of fast. Far matters just as much as fast and that there are other ways of doing things. Even in our means case, if she had to learn that from her husband, that I thought was interesting. Allowing other people to go up their ramps at the right speed. That one, that one hit me as a punch. I think I have not always been kind enough, decent enough, understanding enough, patient enough to give people enough ramp to get up and to come up. Because I suspect I charge up ramps quite fast and remembering that people go at different speeds. I think very, very interesting. And then the point, of course, about deciding to open up. That, that is common to a lot of us. Leaders have to explain themselves. Even young leaders have to explain themselves. And when they do, people are more generous with the offer of following. So five really, really, really interesting, thoughtful points. Thank you very much, Armin. Everybody, please cross your fingers. Wish me luck. Let's hope my voice comes back. I shall be recording a lot next week, but we'll be coming back on the podcast next week with another five objects and another wonderful woman. Lots of love in the meantime, Julia. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.